Hi, I'm Kevin Harris, and you're listening to Steady State Podcast. Sit ready. I'm Tara Morgan. And I'm Rachel Friedman. Here at Steady State Podcast, we're really interested in backstories, real life experiences on and off the water that make people the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today. From indoor rowing to flat water masters to coastal and ocean adventurers, we celebrate you. You represent the global humanity of our sport and help us disrupt and expand the narrative about rowing culture. If you're a first time listener, welcome. If you're coming back for another episode, thanks for being here. Steady State Podcast is sponsored in part by Rosource, providing design services for clubs, organizations, and regattas. Find out more at rosource.com. Tara, you and I, several months ago, really back in the fall, started thinking about gender identity policy pretty in, in depth. And that all got started because we saw this petition floating around uh, the head of Charles that was written by an organization called Icons. We hemmed and hawed about it for a few months and decided this was something we really wanted to talk about and something we really wanted to bring to the podcast. Then we decided we couldn't really do it in one episode. And so we talked to Dr. Mary O'Connor, who's with Icons, and we talked to her about um, their petition to save, quote unquote, women's rowing. And then we follow that up with a conversation with coach Ann Strayer, who's out in California. And her main mantra was making rowing inclusive for everyone, get everyone in the boathouse door, create safe spaces. And a big piece of the ICONS conversation is that current gender identity policies will allow transgender females to take the seat of biological females, especially at the collegiate level. So we wanted to sit down and talk with a collegiate coach and get that perspective. Yeah, this is part three of our series. And I think what's interesting about this series is that it started as us having a very like visceral and emotional reaction to this petition that we saw circulating. And then we thought, well, you know, as our role as podcasters, it's important for us to have these conversations. And then specifically the Steady States podcast, we like to know the people behind the issues. And so we felt like Kevin really rounded out. It may not be the end of the conversation about Mm -hmm. this for us, but Kevin really rounds out some of the questions that have come up along the way. And that one of the questions that we had was, was it like at the collegiate level? We talked to someone from juniors. We've talked to someone who is kind of a representative of the elite Olympic level from the past. Is still very much involved, I think, at that level, but not a rower at that level, obviously. And then now to bringing Kevin We've talked about the high school scholastic collegiate as well as the the master's level and how policies are going to affect master's right. athletes. And so we're really right. interested in what uh, Kevin has to say. He has a very, very long, I shouldn't say very, very, it makes him sound ancient. He has about 30 years of coaching experience with a solid 20 plus years at the helm of uh, women's rowing at the University of Tulsa. We're really curious to hear what he has to say about coaching those programs and diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how DEI and gender inclusion policies kind of all play together. One thing we should say about Kevin is that he also, in addition to that great CV of all the coaching experience, is very deeply invested in being part of the U.S. Rowing Board, our uh, national governing body's board, 
he preceded his board service with being on the DEI committee. So he actually helped found the DEI committee. So I think his perspective is really valuable coming from both his collegiate perspective, but from his service perspective and his own personal history. So like all of our guests on Say Podcast, knowing the people behind the stories is where we like to start the conversation. So let's see what Kevin Harris is about. My name is Kevin Harris. Uh, I learned to row at T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, T.C. Williams no longer exists. It's now called Alexandria City High School uh, because T.C. Williams was a high school that was named after a segregationist uh, superintendent. So that name was rightfully changed. I rode for the Naval Academy. I rode for George Washington University. And I've been a coach kind of all over the country. I, I coached back at T.C. Williams as a young coach. I've coached uh, Yorktown High School, the Potomac Boat Club, Capital Rowing Club. Uh, incidentally, I was the first coach uh, for the DC Strokes, which was uh, a lot of fun. I've coached at Mills College, Kansas State University, and most recently, I was the head coach of the University of Tulsa for 20 years. Today, I am semi-retired. I'm a member of the U.S. Rowing Board of Directors, and uh, soon I will be heading toward uh, law school at Texas Southern University here in Houston. There's something that we do with all of our guests. So Tara, you want to do uh, our, our hot seat? Oh, yeah. We used to call it rapid fire, but, but that was sort of rubbing us the wrong way. So we do this lightning round of questions called hot seat. Are you ready? I hope so. Here we go. <laughs> head race or sprint race? Oh, head race. I, I, I love head racing. It's a, a beautiful uh, way to train and, and to just get people to stay within themselves. Mustang suit or Heli Hansen? Oh, Mustang suit. Love it. Coast Guard uses it. It's great equipment. Favorite coxswain command? Way enough. <laughs> Best place to row and why? Oh, Briones Reservoir in the in the uh, Berkeley Hills of California. I coached at Mills College. That's where Cal rose in St. Mary's. It is one of uh, God's best places on earth. Favorite drill to coach? Pause drill. Got to get the body set, make sure that the boat is moving well. Love the pause drill. Best piece of leadership advice you've ever received? You can't be a good leader until you learn to be a good follower. And last one is coffee in the coaching lounge. It's all about the coffee. Starbucks <laughs> in my hand right now. Excellent. <laughs> I remember uh, I always was hoping that the coaching lounge had a cup holder because <laughs> it, it, it just goes everywhere. It's just chaos if there's no cup holder. Like I would like barricade it with like my toolbox and like other things just to hold the cup. So I love a coaching lounge that has a cup holder. Oh, this actually leads me to wonder, have you ever lost anything out of your coaching launch? <laughs> I have multiple things that have found their way to the bottom of the Anacostia River. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I've been coaching since 1991, right? Yeah, I've, I've lost uh, a couple of stroke watches. Uh, I can't think of anything other than non-rowing related that I, well, my notes for seat racing, that was fun. That's, that's never a good day when you it just like blew off the launch. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> so. I think it's, it's, it's kind of amazing how fast a plastic megaphone that's like three feet long, how fast it sinks. It's amazing. It's like, Whoa. yeah, <laughs> I lost an iPhone. It just slid right off and it was oh like, bloop, 
And then there's literally nothing you can do about it. It's like, mm, okay, moving on <laughs> for practice. <sighs> anyway. Yep. 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 That, that's a heartbreaker right there. It yeah. was a heartbreaker. Okay. Well, thank you for taking our hot seat challenge. And now we know you a little bit better. You know, when you list off the clubs that you were involved with here in the DC area, I just, I can't help but smile. You know, I've been in DC since 1999. I got involved with rowing two years later in 01. And every one of those clubs that you uh, knocked off that list, I'm thinking, okay, you know, either I've known coaches there, I've known rowers there. I didn't realize that you were the first coach of DC strokes. I didn't realize that anyone coached Capital Rowing Club before the Bertichkos <laughs> who've been here for forever. Yeah. So my, my brain is well, you know, when it kind of exploding, when I'm thinking about just how many clubs in the DC region you touched early in your career, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, as, as a young coach, uh, I think it's safe to say I was uh, hustling. I mean, I, you know, trying to survive a little bit. Uh, I was part of starting the Gonzaga high school team. And um, there's a women's school to the north of DC whose name escapes me at the moment, but we also started that team. So, yeah, you know, I've been lucky. Uh, you know, I, I remember when uh, when I was asked, actually, to take the DC Strokes out on the water for the very first time. It was literally, I think, their first time on the water ever. They told me that they were uh, getting ready for this regatta called the Stonewall Regatta. And, you know, I'm born and raised in Virginia. I didn't know what Stonewall was. I was 23 years old. I had no clue. I thought, well, why are they going to a regatta named after a Confederate general? And then when Stonewall was explained to me, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, let's go and figure out how to put these boats on the water. And it was a lot of fun. I am okay that that has been lost to history, but it's still a, a very uh, core memory for me. Oh, well, and this is just so interesting to me because, you know, DC Strokes is always top of mind for me. I've been a, a rower and coach and coxswain there on and off for about 12 years. But also just recently, we did an episode for a Pride special, and we talked to Liz Fondries, who's a longtime member and early founding-ish member of DC Strokes. So hearing your tidbits of history about DC Strokes, it just adds more to the history books for me. So thank you. Sure. No problem. We reached out to you because Rachel and I have been very aware, affected by, moved by these policy changes around gender inclusion. And I know that holistic coaching is important to you. Seeing uh, athletes as whole athletes is important to you. And so we really wanted to pick your brain about that. But first, I wanted to ask if you were at Youth Nationals in Sarasota last week. I, I was. Uh, one of the things that the board has been trying to do to be a little bit more visible and to be more aware of what is sort of happening literally at the the reality level of, of U.S. rowing, the, the ground level, is to go to different areas and have the board meeting rather than just having the in-person board meeting in one place. You know, I think traditionally the, the board meetings have been held mostly in Philadelphia, New York, Boston. So, you know, Nobu Ishizuka, who is the, the chairman has really made it a policy to, to get out. And one of the things that I suggested to him was that we go to Youth Nationals, which pretty much is the largest event that uh, U.S. Rowing puts on. I mean, there were uh, roughly 4,000 uh, young athletes at that regatta, plus all of their parents, all of the coaches, all of the, you know, the staffs affiliated. 
Uh, I don't even know how many volunteers and referees were involved in that. It was a good chance to at least be there and, you know, I guess monitoring the policy that the staff executes, seeing what that looks like. You may or may not know that there was a boycott of Florida last year by Masters Clubs. And I think that that would still be the case this year if they had decided to have host Masters Nationals there. Unfortunately, it's been moved to Indianapolis. Rachel and I will be there. Did you get any sense of the, the Florida controversy? Because it is a very anti-gay state. It's a very anti-progressive state. It's got some very harsh legislation. And I, I want to follow that up with saying one of the comebacks from U.S. rowing last year to that boycott was we will create a safe space. We will create a celebrated space for yes. people who are in the LGBTQIA community. What was the sense there about that? Did that come back up this year? Oh, man. Well, I'm going to answer the second question first, mm-hmm. because walking around the race course was, it was an amazing experience. I'll just put it that way. And, you know, I come at this as obviously an African-American. I'm an African-American cisgender male. Right. That's that's how I identified and seeing the care that was taken by the staff to make sure that, for instance, just small things like everyone on the staff was wearing a rainbow pen. Right. Now, that's performative. Right. But I also know a lot of the people on that staff and they really feel that in their hearts, you know, putting the flags up Saturday, in fact, was Pride Day at the regatta. And that was something that was, you know, manifestly put out by the people on the race course. And I think, you know, that flows into the first part of your question, which is, yeah, you know, Florida's lost its mind. I mean, there there is no doubt in terms of the politics that uh, are being espoused by the current legislature, uh, by the governor, by certain politicians in the state. uh, There's definitely a negative view of gay transgender LGBTQIA plus policy. But, you know, when I look at that, you don't see that necessarily in Sarasota, right? I think one thing that it's important to remember is that that race course was actually built by the Bendersons, the city of Sarasota, the county, and the state of Florida. There are millions and millions of dollars that actually built that race course that came from the prior administration. And, you know, I have no issue with people deciding that they, you know, if people feel unsafe, there's nothing that can be done about that. But I'm also a black man who drives trailers through Mississippi and Alabama, right? And I have felt that and I have seen that. I understand it. I can't tell people not to be worried about it, but I can tell you on that race course, I don't feel that there was an issue with people being worried about it. It wasn't expressed to me and I have plenty of friends of all stripes, so to speak. I appreciate you saying that and giving your perspective on your experience there, because my argument back to U.S. Roaring was, even though the race course might be a safe space, those people still have to go to their hotel. They have to go to the gas station. They have to go to a convenience store. They have to go to a grocery store. So my argument was, it wasn't just the race course bubble. Like, that's great. That's a totally great bubble. But looking at a whole community, but it sounds like Sarasota itself is supportive of what was happening at the race course and kind of everything that comes with being a major national venue, right? I, I would agree 100% with that. And I would say, 
you know, I mean, I'm 54 years old, right? So I've been to Miami, I've been to Orlando, I've been to out to Cocoa Beach and to various places in Florida. And there is a thriving community of people who proudly fly the, the rainbow transgender flag in all of those places, Tampa, right? And, you know, the problem is that when we politicize, right, we create fear because a lot of times when people are trying to gain power or to establish themselves as, as the powerful people, they use fear. Okay, that person is going to take something away from you, right? And unfortunately, gay transgender issues have been at the forefront of that lately. You know, when, when I was younger, it was people who look like me, right? It's Hispanic people, right? I mean, there's a huge uh, controversy in Florida right now about immigrants, which, uh, you know, the governor, unfortunately, is fanning by flying immigrants. You know, he flew immigrants to Massachusetts and I believe just to California recently. So, you know, I, I don't want to minimize anyone's concern because I'm concerned, right? Like, I, I feel very concerned. But like I said, I've also felt very concerned my whole life, you know, I, when I was the head coach, one, one school that I forgot to mention that I was head coach of was Mills College uh, in Oakland, California, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. It's now called Northeastern. But when I was head coach of Mills College, I was privileged to, to uh, have a four earn a berth at the NCAA championships. And that year was on the, you know, it was 1998, I believe. And we were on the Olympic race course at Lake Lanier in Georgia. I think it was the second NCAA championship ever. And, you know, most of the athletes that I coached were from California. And I, I remember one of the women sitting in the front seat with me looking around and I was just wondering, like, what, what does she look? Because she just looked really curious. And she turned to me. She, she was from uh, the Bay Area in California. And she said, Kevin, why are there so many Confederate flags, you know, all, all around here? And I, and I laughed because, you know, I'm from Virginia. Like I hadn't even I had barely even noticed that. Well, it was the state flag of Georgia at the time. Right. It wasn't that, you know, they were specifically Confederate flag. It was literally then before they changed it, the state flag of Georgia. She had no idea, right? Mm -hmm. But to me, as a black man who's grown up in the South, my father's from South Carolina. Parts of my family were brought to the United States literally in chains mm -hmm. in 1750, right before America was America. So the use of color, the use of gender, the use of immigration status, the use of... Um, you know, pretty much anything that anyone could find to create a minority will always be used by people who can't defend their policies in any other way. Thank you for talking about that. I, I'm i thinking back to what R. Shea Cooper said mm -hmm. about be, let your boathouse be a lighthouse yeah. and Richard Butler's comment about what's your welcome mat. And Rachel and I talk a lot with people about the welcome mat. And you know, just like Sarasota's race course might have been a very protected bubble, I think boathouses really have an opportunity and clubs have an opportunity to be that safe uh, space for people to uh, reveal themselves and find themselves in a very supported environment. Yeah, I mean, it was for me as a youngster. I mean, I, I was awful. I was terrible. I, I think I caught like eight or 10 crabs a day my first couple of weeks in rowing. You know, the, the very first words that my mother said to me when I joined rowing or when I said I wanted to join rowing was, you know, why do you want to try for that white boy sport? Mm. You know, and those were literally like, I love my mother and she's an awesome human being and she believes in inclusion. Like that's her thing. But even she couldn't stop herself from saying that to me. And mm. 
there were white coaches that literally said to me, you're going to be great at this. And they welcomed me into the boathouse. You know, Michael Porterfield, who was, you know, a senior captain when I was in eighth grade, you know, he's national teamer, the whole nine yards moving forward, was the guy by my ear when, you know, the poor 110 pound Kevin Harris was trying to lift the 65 pound bench ball and saying, you can do this, right? That welcome mat is hugely important. I believe, I remember one of the things that you were doing when we first met was the para rowing, right? So important, you know, working with, with people yeah. of, of all abilities, all hues, because inclusion is what we should be about. The minute we start excluding people, it hurts everybody. Listen to more episodes about everything from indoor rowing to rowing across oceans. Search the podcast archive at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast dash topics or listen on your favorite podcast app. Sponsors of Steady State Podcast reach thousands of rowers, coaches, and coxswains every year. Packages include episode advertising, logo placement, and more. Book your sponsorship at steadystatenetwork.com slash sponsors. In two, we're back with Kevin Harris. That's one, two. Please note, in this segment of our episode, there's mention of a racial slur. So we want to get into talking about how you got involved in the sport of rowing. Uh, you, you mentioned getting involved in high school here in Virginia and uh, that your mom asked you why you'd want to get involved in a white boys sport. So what was your response to her? Do you remember? I, you know what? I actually don't remember. So I, you know, I grew up in Alexander, Virginia and, you know, a little bit more background. My, my family has lived in Alexander, Virginia for roughly 150 years or something like that, right? So the actual grounds where Alexander City High School, which used to be my high school, T.C. Williams High School, my family actually owns some of the land where T.C. Williams exists, you know, the high school exists today. Oh, wow. Um, on the corner of uh, Braddock Road and, and King Street, there's a church there called Oakland Baptist Church. Yeah. My great great grandfather helped found that church. It's oh, it's still yeah. there after all this time. So, mm-hmm. you know, my mother comes at this from her own lived history. I mean, she helped integrate the public schools in Alexandria, Virginia. Right? She went to Francis Hammond High School, which now is a middle school, but but she had to go through being spit on, being called a nigger. Right? All of these things that that were a part of her history. So I knew when she said that, that came from a real place for her. You know, obviously I was much younger, you know, I was 22 years younger than my mother and this is the 1980s. And here was this opportunity, you know, I I knew a little bit about rowing, but I didn't know really. Um, I'd read an article in National Geographic, ironically, about the Thames River. And I knew that there was this regatta called the Henley and that T.C. Williams, at some point during my time in Alexandria City Public Schools, had sent a boat over to the Henley. And I was like, wow, that's cool. I didn't really have a sport. I was kind of a house soccer player, community soccer player, which was a lot of fun. But those were my friends. And when my friends decided that they were going to go to rowing, I was like, yeah, that sounds like fun. That The problem was I didn't know how to swim. Like I said, I'm, I'm 54 years old and I still swim I think poorly would be generous. I think mm. that would be a, a, a good way to say it. But there was one woman whose name was uh, P- Pat Smith, who I call Mama Pat to this day. 
you know, my best friend was her son, Justin Smith, and he encouraged me to go out there and, and try it. I mean, with her literally standing over the side of the pool as I'm trying to complete my swim test, you know, I, I somehow managed to do the treading water and do the laps and do all that stuff. And that's how I got into rowing. I mean, it was my friends and, and incidentally, my white friends who pulled me into the sport. And, you know, even though I was not very good the first couple of weeks of doing it, I loved it. I mean, there there was nothing like being on the Potomac River, as you well know, Rachel, mm -hmm. like being on the Potomac River at 6 a.m. in the quiet that I didn't know existed in Washington, D.C. When you're out on that river and the sun is coming up and, you know, back then we were in the big wooden Pocock 8s with the wooden oars and, you know, Mike Penn was my coach, right? And he and D. Campbell were amazing mentors to the young kid who was sort of the standout in terms of the way I looked in the boathouse. And without those two men, I don't think that I would still be here. Now, I didn't get involved in rowing until I was an adult. So getting involved as a kid and thinking about early practices, I mean, what was that like for you to get out of the house? And like, it's getting away, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a life-changing experience. I mean, literally, I tried to quit in my first two weeks because it was just so different and I was not very good at it. I mean, I was a 110 pound boy trying to carry a, one of the old Pocock eights and, you know, it was really too heavy for me and the whole nine yards. And then I'd get out on the water and I'd, I'd have a wooden oar up in my chin because I didn't row very well. But Mike Penn, you know, to his everlasting credit for me, uh, put his hand on me and he put, put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Harris, you're going to be great at this. And, you know, I'm a 13 year old looking up at the coach because he knows, right? Really? Really? You think I'm going to be good? Okay, then I'm, I'll stick around. It was that kind of life changing experience. It was the ability to do something that other people didn't know. And, and understand that TC Williams was a very large rowing. Still really equally, big today, right? It is still, yes. Mm -hmm. And still, you know, pretty much equally divided between the men and women. But what was different about it was that it was a public school rowing team. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the ability to, I, maybe we paid $20, I don't know, whatever it was, it was a lot for me, but it wasn't so out of reach that I couldn't figure out how to, you know, ask my grandmother for $5, ask my uncle for $5 and go get the physical at the health service and, and figure it out. So having people as Arche and Richard, you know, two good friends of mine say, oh, Richard be welcoming, yeah. yeah, right, to, to be welcoming in that space was life-changing. And then being able to be in that space and realize at some point that, yeah, you know what, you really can do this and you get out of it what you put into it. That also was a life-changing experience because that's growing up. That's understanding that if you want to be good at something, you got to work. Now, you talked about um, eventually coxing at both the U.S. Naval Academy and GW. When did you make that transition to the coxswain seat? <laughs> well, so I was a lightweight rower at uh, at TC Williams. I was, you know, captain of the team. You know, we did we did pretty well. Stotesbury, all the big regattas. But when I arrived at the Naval Academy, I weighed. I was the lightest of the lightweights in high school. And when I arrived at the Naval Academy and they put me on the scale, I weighed 123 pounds. Yeah. So I'd gone through plebe summer and all that stuff. And you know, I, I was never more than 130 pounds my whole time in high school. So I got on the scale and, and Rodney Pratt was the novice coach at Navy then. And he's standing behind me. He's, he's an Englishman. 
And he's like, ah, Harris, you're going to cook for me, right? <laughs> I was a plebe at the Naval Academy. What am I supposed to say? I said, yes, you sir. Say, yes, right? sir. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> so that's that's how I ended up being a, a coxswain. And it turned out to be pretty good at it. You know, I was moved up to varsity back when freshmen actually weren't allowed to row in varsity. Coach Clothier had to go to the Eastern Sprints into the IRA and get dispensation for me to basically to coach their cox as a freshman, the third mm-hmm. eight. Uh, so I always appreciated them for that. And it's taken me a long time to get here, but uh, and just a lot of coaching experience. But I have always found that coxswains are now becoming coaches are the best coaches because they just have this. It's almost like the catcher, like you used to play catcher and softball. And when you're mm-hmm. the catcher, you're getting every pitch. You're constantly, you're, you're eyeball to eyeball with the pitcher and you're making things happen with the strategy but you also have this global view of the field right. and you're calling the plays. It's like, go to one, go to one, go to one. And I feel like the coxswain is kind of the catcher. And that's just my perspective because of playing so much softball. Uh, and I think Rachel, you and I both have softball backgrounds, so um, you can relate, but that global view and they're also having the coach in their ear, mm. tell them things. What was it about coxing that you felt like, this is my wheelhouse. I can really succeed at this. Do you remember? It's funny that you say that, Terry, because when I started coxing, I was actually a little upset because I planned on being a lightweight rower at Navy. And, you know, I was gung-ho. I mean, at that point, my 18-year-old self, I was very much, I can do anything. And, and rowing taught me that, right? Like, I can do anything as long as I'm willing to work hard enough for it. But I was completely unaware of what it was like to be a collegiate Division I lightweight rower, you know, in the Eastern Sprints Men's League. And there was no way that I would have been as fast as the guys that I was able to cox in college. But it took me about six months to actually six months of coxing to actually realize just how not as good as these guys I, I was. You know, what really helped me was actually they moved me up from the freshman novice group into the varsity group pretty early, uh, like in September, late September, October of my freshman year. And it was basically because Coach Clothier just needed more coxswains to run his practices and so on and so forth. But, you know, I remember, and this will definitely date me, we were out in pairs with, if you can imagine, mm-hmm. we were sea racing in pairs with. <laughs> and, you know, the older, and understand the hierarchy of the Naval Academy, when you're a plebe, you are taught to be very separate from the upperclassmen, right? Because they are essentially training you. And, you know, so I had two older rowers in the the boat that I was coxing and I screwed up. I I missteered the course during one of their seat races, which is at a pair, at a pair with on top of that, which is the heaviest boat in the world. You just don't do. I remember we got back to the dock and the guys basically looked at me and said, Kevin, you're going to be a fantastic coxswain. You're a great guy. And then they picked me up and threw me in the water and then said, <laughs> don't make that mistake again. Uh-huh. And I didn't. Yeah. And, you know, it was that sort of rough camaraderie of, of being on that crew. Some of them, unfortunately, who are not with us anymore, fighting in the global war for terror. And, you know, I miss them. They are, they are fantastic people and people that I've grown up with. It was that sense of camaraderie that I could help make these boats faster that made me a better coxswain. I was looking at your CV and you moved really quickly into coaching. I think you were even coaching while you were still in college. (laughs) How did you end up coaching at TC Williams in Alexandria? Mike Penn and D. Campbell. 
So I didn't graduate, you notice, from the Naval Academy because I got in trouble. You know, I, I dated and that wasn't allowed. And the Secretary of the Navy decided that my services were no longer warranted. Oh, <laughs> um, wow. But that was, as you can imagine, very hard for me because, you know, I was very committed to that. And I walked into the boathouse shortly after I left the academy. And you want to talk about the welcome mat. The first person that I saw was my lightweight coach, Ed Cannon. He was working on a boat and he looked up, he saw me, he stopped everything and he just put his arms out like this. And he said, come here, son. No. Mm -hmm. and, and understand that he actually had been a naval officer. Right. Mm -hmm. So he knew and, what you were going through. Right. And so out of his crew, there were four of us at the Naval Academy at that time. So he just put his arms out to me and he, he wrapped his arms around me and gave me the biggest hug you could imagine and said, hey, why don't you come out with me today? And that's how it started. You know, I, I was just sitting in the launch and he was asking me questions and I was answering. And then again, Mike Penn and D Campbell, you know, they said, hey, come out with us tomorrow. So I was able to kind of be like a journeyman intern. And I coached with the boys. I coached with the girls. I coached with the lightweights. I coached with the fours. And I think that I contributed something because we were pretty fast that year. And uh, at the end of the year, Mike said, hey, Kev, we can't race the second boys eight at, at the Scholastic Nationals. Take these boys, break them into a junior four and a varsity four and coach them for me. And I did that. We finished second at the Scholastic Nationals. That was a great feeling. I mean, that yeah. was like, wow, maybe I can do this. But the most important part of it was the healing part, right? It was the coming back to the boathouse, holding the women's national championship plaque against the wall with, you know, knowing that we'd had these other medals and D Campbell, who was not the most um, emotionally available person that you is <laughs> amazing coach and a wonderful human. And I will love him forever. But D Campbell basically seeing my emotion and again, just giving me a big old hug. Like D was not a hugger. So the fact that he walked up and did that, you know, when you talk about having a place that welcomes you and supports you, T.C. Williams, the D. Campbell Boathouse, as it's now called, was that place for me and will always be, you know, special to me in my heart. Yeah, I actually just had the opportunity to be at the D. Campbell Boathouse just last weekend. And I only get there once every couple of years, but it always amazes me. It's a really nice facility there on Potomac. But the thing that is just makes my eyes pop every time you walk down this main hallway to the erg room and yeah. this hallway is, I don't know, 40 feet long and the entire wall is plastered. Yeah. And it's impressive. Yeah. There's some history there. Yeah. It's amazing to, so, you know, unlike say Arche or Richard, I come from the more traditional side of rowing, right? So I come from the more scholastic and that's part of it, right? Like to be able to walk in and see all of that history and to be welcomed into it, more importantly, that was huge. They, they built that boathouse. That boathouse opened my senior year in high school. Before that, we lived in an old squat, dank cinder block building that used to be part of the torpedo factory, uh, mm. which is now an art gallery down in, in downtown Old Town. We were actually reasonably happy with that space, but they needed it to basically commercialize that area because of the art museum. So they moved us upstream to the current boathouse. And that current boathouse is the same boathouse that, that I was privileged to be a part of. 
I didn't know that history of uh, the torpedo factory. To me, the torpedo factory is definitely like the place that you go to check out artists and you get your brunch. <laughs> so um, it's interesting to think of that as a, as a boathouse in years back. Well, again, my grandfather worked there during World War II, right? So yeah, he was a janitor at the, at the, uh, at the torpedo factory. Wow. Wow. What a history you have in that area. That's incredible. I wanted to go into the DEI committee U.S. rowing question. Okay. So we all know that kind of right before the pandemic or right around the beginning of the pandemic in 2020 uh, with Black Lives Matter and and a lot of other pressing issues uh, on the national scene, uh, U.S. rowing came under a lot of pressure to do something. Finally, please do something. And there was a lot of private initiatives that were happening that were going parallel to this. There was like rowing in color was happening and a whole host of really generative and then also some performative stuff was happening as well around inclusion. And when we say inclusion, we could mean race, we could mean gender, we could mean sexuality, we could mean ability inclusion. In 2020, you were invited to join the DEI committee How did you get to be part of the DEI committee in its nascent kind of form as it was being rebuilt? And what was that like? What were those conversations in those rooms like at the beginning there? Oh, boy. In May of 2020, when George Floyd was murdered by the police officers in Minneapolis, that was a really rough time. And, uh, you know, Malcolm Daldron actually reached out to me and a few of the African-American male coaches, interestingly, around the country because we were all sort of siloed and we were very alone. And uh, in early June, so not very long after that happened, we had our first meeting of what would become the Black Coaches and Rowers Association. I believe on that first call, there were 15 African-American males, many of whom, by the way, were from DC. And just the I don't know, relief, the happiness, the joy at seeing so many people that look like each other in that space was really, really important. And it it served to, I think, help us all kind of talk our way through understanding what was going on in our own community as rowers. At the same time, uh, U.S. Rowing had an interim uh, CEO at that point. And, you know, it was a tough time for U.S. Rowing for a lot of different reasons. Um, not least of which the the association was in a bad state financially because basically the entire uh, year of 2020 had just been erased and they were already in dire straits in terms of economics and any number of things. And the CEO, the interim CEO put out a uh, press release that was less than satisfactory, I think would be a good way to say that. Mm-hmm. And I remember having a conversation. Oh, I remember. Yes. And I, I called her, or she called me, actually, and I had a conversation with her saying how poorly written that was. And, you know, it doesn't matter that we have a constituency that may not believe in diversity, equity. U.S. Rowing needs to stand up for all of the people who do believe in it, because there are more of them than there are of the other, right? And so she did she did replace that, and it was soon thereafter that pretty much Nobu Ishizuka, who's now the chairman of the board, you know, push to have a board committee that is focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion policy within U.S. rowing. 
So the DEI committee is basically an advisory committee to the board of directors, if that makes sense. Basically, the BCRA pushed me to be a part of the first DEI committee and Richard and Malcolm, who are all a part of that. And it's actually from the DEI committee that I end up being on the board because there was also a push from the DEI committee that one of us should try very hard to be on the board of directors. It's a big, I mean, essentially DEI is everything but, right? And and the but in the room is white cisgender male in particular in the United States. It tends to be you know, what we think of as traditional rowing, the Ivy Leagues, the, the prep schools, the right. And even though that's not the majority at all of what we do, that's kind of how we default in rowing. So a lot of the conversations in those initial months and understand that the DEI committee, when it first met, was establishing something like there, there was nothing there. Richard had, had worked so hard as an individual to be that person for U.S. rowing in the past, but he couldn't do it. He didn't have the bandwidth or the support or the ability to make the changes, even the changes that we've seen in the last three years, right? He didn't have that ability. He did a lot. His experience was invaluable in creating that DEI committee. That DEI committee met once a week for like four months. They divided into subcommittees to try and tackle various issues, you know, communication from U.S. rowing to the membership has always been a problem, and that's something that that we've tried to work on. And it's you know it kind of goes back and forth, but we're progressing with that. The policy piece, you know, we didn't have a lot of policies, so trying to help Amanda Krause, who became CEO in the middle of that, was really important. And and, and Amanda, to her credit, for the first year of the committee, was on just about every one of the calls. So, you know, these are things that people don't see sort of behind the scenes, but the effort is there to make the change. It's just that it's not always, it's not one, it's not things that can necessarily be shared, but also things that people just can't see for one reason or another. You know, it's the making of the sausage as opposed to the sausage itself. Oftentimes when a group of people get together for an advocacy purpose like that, somebody will lead the conversation, like a Richard Butler, who's a natural facilitator, a natural leader, will Absolutely. say, What's our mission statement? What's our vision? Were you allowing that traditional white cisgender male to be that conversation? Or was it primarily people who had been marginalized? What were some of the community agreements about how we should proceed? And was there some disagreement about that? Was there some tension about how to do this kind of work? I, I think that's a fantastic question. So Richard, Richard Butler and Kirsten Feldman uh, were the first two co-chairs of, of the committee. And Kirsten, if you don't know Kirsten, she's an amazing human being. She's also now on the board of directors, by the way. And she is uh, Afro-Caribbean, but also is Canadian. She's a pretty uh, knowledgeable and she loves being in the um, nonprofit space, so to speak. And she jumped at this chance to be a rowing mother on the DEI committee, right? So you have that. You have Richard, who is just a natural facilitator. And the two of them really saw their job as doing exactly what you're saying, Tara, that is allowing everyone to speak, but keeping it focused on, okay, this is where we're trying to go. What's the best way to get there? And, not, you know, I won't say that it was easy because no one has ever made progress in a straight line. You know, everybody wants, uh, you know, that vertical straight line towards success. 
And, you know, as I, as I've told my rowers over and over again, it just doesn't exist. You know, it's going to be squiggly. It's going to be up and down. It's going to be sideways. But as long as you're still moving forward and sometimes you have to look back in order to, to move forward. And that's what we do in rowing all the time, right? We're looking backwards to, to go forward. Eventually you will get there. We're, we're not there yet, but the committee has progressed really well. And so, you know, we had, you know, a member of the transgender community. We had, uh, you know, gay lesbian members, we had para members, we had, you know, everything in, in some ways, but, and, and actually that was a flaw in the committee in some ways, because I don't think that there was, and the the people who were in the committee were picked by the board. I don't think that we actually had a white cisgender male on the committee originally. And that has, that has been corrected now because all the voices are important, right? So, there were some contentious moments. I mean, in the subcommittees, especially because, you know, people felt freer in the subcommittees to really, you know, argue about this thing or that thing. But in the end, the agreement on the committee was we're going to listen to everybody because that's what diversity, equity, inclusion is about in the first place. I think this is a really fantastic segue into one of the main reasons that we wanted to talk with you today. Sure. You know, when we talk about DEI, a piece of that is gender inclusion. And this episode will be part three in a conversation we're we're having about gender identity policies. And then the last, you know, handful of months at this point, six, 12 months, world rowing, US rowing, NCAA, all their policies have been updated. This really came onto our radar starting last fall at Head of the Charles. There was a piece of paper, uh, a petition floating around. Tara picked it up and brought it over to me. And she was like, what is this thing? And we looked into it and it was a petition put together by an organization called Icons. And I'm sure you've you've heard about this, right? Definitely. Yeah. I've not read the petition, but I, I have heard of it. Yeah. Oh, well, I can tell you that, uh, so ICONS is a network and an advocacy group composed of uh, current and former collegiate and professional women, athletes, and their families and supporters. They are petitioning U.S. rowing and other governing bodies influencing rowing policy to protect female athletes. And they want to defend the original intent of Title IX. So seeing this petition really got us thinking a lot about what's going on with gender inclusion policies. And we spent a fair amount of time reading and researching and then decided we really wanted to have some conversations about this. My inroads into asking you about this is that we're excited to talk with you who has been and spent so many years coaching scholastic and collegiate programs. And this is who the ICONS group is most concerned about. They're concerned that trans female athletes are taking seats of biological female athletes. And you've spent so many years not only coaching collegiate athletes, but specifically women's programs. So I guess I wanted to kind of like get behind the door there and like ask, you know, first of all, how did you even get involved with coaching women? And then why'd you stick it with it for so long? Was it an opportunity that fell in your lap? And then that's just where you settled in? Yeah. I mean, again, so Dee Campbell was a legendary women's coach of high school rowing there in TC Williams. And he allowed me to be his assistant. I'll never forget, you know, I, I started coaching high school women at Yorktown High School. And Al Villaray had been the head coach of the women's program forever. 
And he saw me actually coaching the Capital Rowing Club juniors one summer. And he came up to me that, and I was always a little bit wary when Al would walk up to me because usually there was a problem because we used at Capital Rowing Club, we used Yorktown's equipment. So I was thinking, oh no, have we broken something? Did did we piss Al off somehow? And, and, and Al, by the way, was also, besides just being an amazing human being in general, he was a graduate of the United States Naval Academy. He was in at the academy the last time that Navy sent a crew to the Olympics. Hmm. And uh, this big bear of a man, and he walks over and he says, uh, hey, Kevin, um, what are you doing? Are you obligated to T.C. Williams next year? And I was completely confused because I was expecting to be told I had done something wrong. And I said, well, not really. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just, I'm a volunteer down there. And he said, well, how'd you like to coach the women at your town? I just looked at him because I thought, you're, well, you're the women's coach. He's like, well, no, I'm going to coach the guys. So I said, well, can I think about it and then tell you afterwards? I was like, yeah, I mean, this sounds like something I want to do. I was a little flummoxed by it because I always thought I was just going to be coaching guys, right? Because that's what you did as a male in the 1990s. But then I thought about it and, you know, seeing my juniors out there, I realized that there really weren't a lot of people clamoring to coach on the women's side. And I saw it as an opportunity and I had a great, you know, I had great mentors. I mean, having Al Villaray stand there and say, you can do this. And then we had great athletes. You know, I don't know if you know, Ardeth White, for instance, Ardeth White is a chief referee or has been, I think she's kind of backed away from it, but she's a part of the Southern referee Corps out of Atlanta. Ardeth was the stroke of my boat my first year. And, mm -hmm. you know, very soon after that, she and the coxswain of that boat Cox for B.B. Bryan's at the World Championships, the Junior World Championships in Montreal, won a bronze medal. So I was blessed in a lot of ways, despite whatever mistakes that I made. I just had great people around me who kept me from really screwing it up. And we went fast. From that point, you know, I moved to uh, coach at Potomac with Nancy Butt, who was the, the coach up there at the time. And, uh, you know, ended up being in charge of the entire Potomac women's program at one point. And, um, you know, we, we won at the Canadian Henley, we won all these different places. And it was Jeannie Friedman at Mount Holyoke who really pushed me to become a, a, a collegiate coach, because even though she said that she re wasn't really interested in hiring a man to coach at Mount Holyoke, she saw me in the launch one day and asked if I'd like to come up and be her novice coach. And it was uh, a life-changing thing for me. Now we fast forward to, to these times. There's so much scrutiny as well as potential legislative change around what Title IX means. And by that, I mean, and I'll just review for the folks listening, that uh, the Biden administration is poised, really, to change Title IX to say not just your your sex, but your gender, and which that means gender identity. So it's not just what you are assigned at birth, but what you choose to world. And it's much more subjective, I guess. There are a lot of discussions happening and it's a both want to unpack from a lot of different perspectives, especially yours as a women's co collegiate perspective, but also to help our listeners develop their own opinions about this because we know icons isn't done. We know icons will be at the big regattas this year with their uh, materials and, and their fairness for women initiative. So I just want to get your take as both the board and DEI perspective, but also coming from this really strong collegiate women's background. So what's happening around the gender inclusion policy at the DEI, U.S. rowing DEI and U.S. rowing board level right now? 
Right. Well, there's there's a lot there, right? <laughs> and it, it's fraught. I mean, it, you know, people have their own opinions, as they should, about what the gender policy should be. Um, if I could just set the stage for a minute, you know, one of the things that I'm not sure that people are really aware of how many people this is um, sort of affecting in U.S. rowing. There's a little over 70,000 members, registered members of U.S. rowing, dues-paying members. Of that 70,000, roughly 300 are registered as non-binary, identify as non-binary. And when I asked this question about a month ago, there were 10 transgender athletes in U.S. rowing. Of those, five are under the age of 19 and five are over the age of 19. Now, I, I won't profess to say that those numbers are 100% firm, but they're you know within a margin of error pretty close. I would guess that there are more of both groups. So let's let's just start there. In terms of the rowing policy, the gender policy has been out since 2016, right? Mm-hmm. The policy isn't fundamentally, there are some tweaks to it, but it's not really fundamentally different than what was put out in 2016. And what's interesting to me is uh, I think in 2010 or 2011, there was the possibility I, as a women's coach, was going to have a transgender female on my team at, at Tulsa. And I remember being taken, you know, I was a little bit taken by surprise by it, but I dove into it because I really do believe that inclusion is the right thing. And this is personally, right? I'm just going to, now this is a very personal thing as opposed to the board or U.S. Rowing or the DEI committee. And I remember going into the NCAA manual and reading the rules, right? Because they were there. Those rules have existed for longer than we've been having this particular conversation at the level that we're having it. Mm -hmm. So I'm talking 2010, 2011, and nobody seemed that concerned about it. I even asked other coaches, right? Other division one collegiate coaches. What's happened is that this has become very emotionally charged. And we know why. I mean, a lot of it is, um, you know, there's there's a political bent to it. Uh, it's a little bit what I talked about earlier, that people take an issue where people are going to have trouble sort of proving a negative, right, or disproving a negative. And they use that then to create power or pressure on the strictures to sort of break those down. I'm going to say straight out that, I have a ton of respect for the icons, right? I have a ton of respect for Mary O'Connor, you know, Dr. O'Connor, right? She's an amazing human being. Um, There are people involved in this effort who I've looked up to my whole career because they were. They were the 1980 Olympic team that didn't get to be who they were. They were the women who literally made my job possible, right? I I never forget that, not ever. And they are more than welcome in this space to express their concerns and their worry about preserving women's rowing. I will also say, as someone who's been a head coach of a Division I women's rowing program for over 20 years or right at 20 years, I don't feel that there's a threat to women's rowing in the sense that Title IX in and of itself is a law that was meant to be inclusive. Mm-hmm. It is very tough to take a law that's meant to be inclusive and use it to exclude, right? And I, I don't know exactly what the Biden administration is is doing, but I can tell you from a board point of view now that, you know, we have lawyers on our board and they have paid very strict attention, including Nobuisa Ishizuka, who is the chairman. He's a 
Columbia Law School professor. And the fact is that the federal courts of the United States, the district courts, the circuit courts, and the Supreme Court, right? The Supremes themselves have fallen very hard, very positively on the side of transgender females in terms of scholastic participation in sports in the United States. And I don't think that there's anyone that can argue that the Supreme Court in the United States is somehow, a, a, to use what has become, unfortunately, a pejorative term, a woke institution. But in, in terms of what we know as a national governing body, the Supreme Court has said in many instances now that they favor or they have decided in the favor of the transgender female in just about every instance that's been bought before the courts. So as a national governing body who is also regulated by the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, which is then regulated by the Olympic Sports Act, there's no real choice. And the fact that the governing board, the board of directors before us and the CEOs before us created this policy in 2016 was actually very forward thinking and is probably one of the most progressive policies among the 50-ish NGBs in the USOPC at this moment. So you've coached athletes that have gone on to make U23 senior national and Olympic teams. Congratulations. Thank you. And you recently coached a U.S. junior women's national team selection camp. Have you heard concerns from rowers or parents about the current gender inclusion policy? No. And, you know, I, I won't say that they don't exist. I'm sure they exist. But I have not personally, no one has personally said that to me. Uh, you know, I have had the privilege of talking to Dr. O'Connor. I think she's an amazing person. But other than that, no, there haven't been any concerns. And And one thing that I... I want to say is that in terms of the board, the board hashed out this policy for six months. Mm -hmm. So last year from basically June, uh, before that, April, March through September, we really went at it as, as a board. You know, I can't give out confidences, obviously, but there are people on both ends of that spectrum. There are people who, you know, really fought for one side and, and I was pushed as someone who, you know, believes that inclusion is important. And the one question that was specifically asked to me was, well, you're a women's coach. What would you do if you lost a national championship because there was a transgender female in the other boat? Mm -hmm. And I had to really think about that. And my answer is, I would take silver. I would take the second place, right? Because those are the rules. Would I be happy about it? No, but I wouldn't be happy about it if it wasn't a transgender female right? Because that's competition. You know, the, the argument will be that, well, that person took away something from someone else. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how to argue that. I mean, we all compete under the conditions that are presented to us. And if that person is following the rules, then I don't feel that I have an argument. And then I would take it even a step further. So people were very upset over our performance as a national governing body at the Tokyo Olympics, where uh, the uh, senior team didn't win any medals. The pair, the pair team won one medal. But when you look at the performance of the senior team, for instance, I was privileged to be Michelle Suchter's coach in college, right? She's in the lightweight double. Well, in that race, that lightweight doubles race, there was one second between first place and sixth place. Wow. And I defy anyone as a coach, as a spectator, as a rower to tell me where 
between 2016 and 2021, when that race was was run, how they could have figured out that one second, like what one thing or two things or five things that they did that would have made the difference for them winning the medal. Where I'm going with this is if those medals, the gold, silver, bronze medals had been won with a transgender athlete in there, and we had transgender athletes available who could have won the gold, then we would be criticized for not utilizing all of our resources as a national governing body. Hmm. So I think that this is very emotional, but in terms of what we are actually trying to do, we're trying to make a policy that works for the entire association, which is damn near impossible. <laughs> it's, it's damn near impossible. So to be criticized by both sides tells me that we're at least edging toward something that will work. I think it's such a powerful experience to sit in a room with people who feel so passionately about this sport to the point where they're willing to serve, to the point where they're willing to speak up, to the point where uh, they're willing to be publicly, you know, kind of put on the line for what they what they believe. And it's all about this sport. And that's the crazy part about it is that it's all about how much all these people love rowing right. and how much all these people want to preserve this experience. And everyone's experience is so varied and so different. And we've all been transformed by it in so many different ways. I just have to have a lot of props for that. Like the fact that people are putting so much time and energy to try and keep this sport as transformative as it can be. Um, and even maybe expansive, like be expansive about it. Like how much bigger and better could we get? Thank you so much for like being part of that committee and being on that board, because it's good for me to know that there are people like you who are smart and eloquent and experienced and, and will hear us. Like, I think that's been part of the problem with us rowing's board is they've been over here kind of off in the distance. And I love what you said at the very beginning about having board meetings in more public spaces or more public events. This conversation isn't over. This gender policy conversation isn't over. And I think it's going to play out in a lot of different ways. Like I just saw there was an open double event at Youth Nationals. Like, okay, that happened. Nobody got struck by lightning. (laughs) You know, and like, yeah, I honestly, I think it's just going to be one of those things where it's like, well, this is how we do it now. You know, I mean, I hope. Well, let me start first by saying, you know, I I appreciate what you said about people who want to step up and everyone is passionate about the sport in their own way. And that includes the two of you, right? The two of you are so important in this space because quite frankly, we're not great at communicating, right? U.S. rowing traditionally has been just kind of okay at it. Now, I will say, and I'm going to throw this out there because the staff at U.S. rowing, there's 34 people who are busting their tails every day to make this better. And there's no better way to see that than to watch them work at the regattas. But I, I want to say this to your larger listening audience, that the people at U.S. Rowing are committed. They believe in this. They, they want to help everyone, right? Wherever your thoughts are on the spectrum, they are doing their best to make this the best NGB that they can on a very limited budget, but that somehow they still manage to come out on top of this. And, the, you know, Amanda, Rich Capiocho, Chris Chase, and so many more that I can't even get to, and I apologize. But I think it's so important that we appreciate how hard the national governing body has to work to be able to accommodate everyone from 
the 16-year-olds that I saw rowing at San Miguel Middle School from New York to the 90-year-old masters that will go and row at the head of the Charles to the national team, to the Paras, to the coastal now. We're trying so hard to, I know coastal people, it doesn't feel like it, but trust me, we just had this discussion. We are trying. That I think is important for me to say. Our job is to be a collaborative body that basically makes U.S. rowing hopefully better. That hasn't always been the case, but we're we're doing what we can. So our job as a board now is to figure out how to help. That's what we're there to do, is to help so that we as individual rowers within U.S. rowing can have the experience that we think it ought to be. Having said that, you know, as a member of the DEI committee, the DEI committee now has two new, very awesome chairmen, uh, Jenny Withicum, who's there on the West Coast uh, in Oregon, and uh, Leslie Gross, who's on the East Coast in New Jersey. Uh, they're bo both incredibly capable chair people, and they've expanded the committee so that they can create smaller committees to work on these various things to then push the board to do something about that, right? So that's going to occupy most of the next year. I probably will rotate off of the board of directors in 2024. I haven't quite decided yet. I'm an at-large representative, but I am starting law school in August. <laughs> so that's that's the other reason why I won't be in Indianapolis, because I will be sitting in the classroom wow. while you know, sweating on you <laughs> getting it done. I'm looking forward to that. And I'm actually mm -hmm. sort of looking toward maybe being a civil rights constitutional lawyer. Yeah, wow. what an exciting second chapter for you. That's amazing. Yeah, well, my lovely wife, Jennifer, who also is a rower, Dr. Harris, right? Like she's being very supportive of me, even though I think she thinks I've gone nuts. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go back to law school and hang out with the 24-year-olds, who've uh, the brilliant 24-year-olds and try and keep up with them. You can do it. I have a brother who went to law school as an adult student, and yeah. I think he's much better for it. And he thinks he's much better for it. And, you know, you're going to be a better student because you have 30 more years of experience and knowledge under your belt than those 20 somethings. Well, that's what my lovely daughters keep telling me. And yeah. I think the most important thing for me has been to see sort of their pride in the fact that I've tried to do this. Um, you know, Victoria, my oldest daughter and Alex, my youngest, they both looked at me and said, you know, you tell us we can do things all the time and you coach all these people. Yeah. Okay, well, don't tell us you can't do it. So get out there. You know, they're really great about that. Well, we will have to stay in touch, see how your first semester of law school <laughs> goes. And uh, really, um, congratulations on an amazing career up to this point and good luck there at Texas Southern. Thank you both. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity. I, I hope, you know, I was able to bring something to this conversation that helps people. Oh, I think you brought a lot of somethings. So Kevin Harris, thank you so much for sharing your ideas, opinions, thoughts with us here on Steady State Podcast. It's been excellent to chat with you. This has been fantastic. Uh, I really appreciate what the two of you are doing in the rowing space. And uh, just thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, you are welcome. Can't wait for our listeners to hear this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, really, thank you so much. This was fantastic. Thanks for having me, y'all. Appreciate you. Yeah. To see photos of Kevin and to get links to the people, clubs, and events mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes on our website. Study State Podcast is sponsored in part by Barb for short hairstyling needs on and off the water. Find Barb at thebarbshop.com. 
EB5, the online community helping those seeking a green card through the EB5 visa program. Find out more at eb5investors.com. Coming up on the next episode. In the early 1980s, the city of Indianapolis was actively promoting amateur sports as an economic development strategy. A couple of successful high-profile regattas led to the founding of the Indianapolis Rowing Center and a plan to develop a world-class rowing course at Eagle Creek. Nearly four decades later, the rowing course remains one of the country's premier venues and rowers will be descending on Eagle Creek for the 2023 U.S. Rowing Masters Nationals Championships this July. On this episode, IRC Board President Janet Francis, Masters Head Coach Zach Christopher, and recent Learn to Row graduate Lisa Stickley give us an inside look at rowing in Indianapolis. Steady State Podcast is made possible with listener support. Become a patron today for early access to episodes, discounts on SSN swag, and invitations to patron-only events. Find out more at SteadyStateNetwork.com slash Patreon. Hey, Tara, I think some listeners might not know that Steady State is more than a podcast. Oh, so much more. Yeah, we get together on Instagram Live for coffee chat every Friday morning at 8 a.m. West, 11 East. And we bring that post-practice coffee with teammates vibe online to talk with the community about all things rowing. So grab your favorite mug and add your voice to the conversation. And make plans to visit us at the 2023 U.S. Rowing Masters Nationals, July 20th through 23rd in Indianapolis. Get more info when you subscribe to our weekly e-newsletter. This episode was written, produced, hosted, and edited by me, Tara Morgan. And me, Rachel Friedman. Tara provides additional audio engineering and is our sponsor coordinator. Rachel manages our website and social media. Our theme music is by Jonas Hipper. Between us, we have nearly 40 years of rowing, coaching, and coxing experience. Tara is based on Vashon Island, Washington. She founded Seize the Oar Foundation in 2010, is fanatic about coaching Learn to Row, and believes the pair is the best boat. Rachel is the founder of RowSource, a longtime rower, coach, and coxswain at the Anacostia Community Boathouse in Washington, D.C., and is squeamish about sculling. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Steady State Network, Seize the Oar, and RowSource. If you liked today's episode and you'd like to join our team in helping make more Steady State podcast episodes, please go to SteadyStateNetwork.com slash Patreon. In two... Way enough. That's one, two. Hi. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Not hi. I'm Tara Morgan. <laughs> but hi. That's <laughs> Yeah. I think that's actually a more friendly way of doing yeah. it. But. Um, uh okay banter uh, ready set banter <laughs> all right so tara hey. mm-hmm. sorry go, go ahead <laughs> no you go in two way enough that's one two